This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Political Science, a podcast by the New Books Network. I'm Doha Jirbi, a PhD student in political science at the Geneva Graduate Institute. Uh, with me today is Professor Carla Hummel of the University of Miami to discuss their book, Why Informal Workers Organize, Contentious Politics, Enforcement, and the State. In this book, published in 2021 by Oxford University Press, Dr. Hummel marshals a variety of methodological techniques from original surveys, machine learning estimations to 14 months of ethnographic fieldwork in Bolivia and Brazil to answer the questions of why and under what conditions groups like street vendors decide to organize. Specifically, Dr. Hummel shows how workers and what Z calls officials, the assembly of local politicians, bureaucrats, and police interact to co-produce organization and compliance. With a game theoretic model underpinning a strong theory of strategic state intervention and collective action, which builds off of and advances canon works in collective um, action literature, this book is especially useful for those researching contentious politics, civil society, and informal economies, as well as labor ethnographers, sociologists of work, and public policy practitioners. This brief introduction does not give justice to this excellent book, winner of the 2023 Riker Prize for the Best Book in Political Economy. So, Carla, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in informal economies. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm very excited to be here and to discuss my book. I, so I started to get into work on in order. I started to be interested in informal economies and especially how people working in informal economies organized when I was working under the table in the 2008, uh, after the 2008 financial crisis in the US. So I graduated, I couldn't get a job, and I took a bunch of um, essentially gig work around Seattle. And I later then started traveling to Bolivia. And in Bolivia, lots of people work informally, about 80% of people in Bolivia work informally. But unlike in the United States, many of them belong to associations and unions. So where I was experiencing a financial and political crisis in the United States, and just kind of getting whatever job would give me a little bit of cash and being relatively atomized from political processes and absolutely not organized in any sense. The people that I was meeting in Bolivia who had gone through similar things were joining unions and talking to local politicians and protesting and being very much mobilized as workers. 
Um, and so I thought this was really, really interesting, just on a personal level. Like I wanted to know how workers in the United States could do something similar to to what workers in Bolivia had been doing um, through a variety of different political conditions. Uh, and from a political science perspective, I also realized that this was really not what political scientists would expect. Political scientists would expect that people who work informally don't organize, don't engage in politics, are pretty atomized because people who work informally lack a lot of the things that we associate with um, unionization and with uh, political participation more broadly. People are typically working long hours for little pay, and they're also breaking all of these laws. And so political scientists don't expect people who don't have very many resources and are breaking a lot of laws to intentionally engage with the political system. Um, but we see that in Bolivia. And so it was a, a really interesting puzzle to work on as well as as something personally meaningful because I wanted to see these this kind of level of worker mobilization in the United States. That's great. I really love to to to, to learn about the genesis of, of an author's sort of idea and having it tied to their personal experience, especially in precarious labor, uh like uh like yours is really interesting. Um and yeah, in your book you do say that this is sort of an important contribution that it is because um People always assume, and researchers in particular, that informal workers rarely organize, which you show is not at all the case. But another justification for your intervention, which I also found extremely interesting, is that a lot of the collective action literature tends to sideline a pretty big player, the government. I haven't read your book, and um, I find that incorporating the state and its associated actors in such analyses seems rather intuitive. So why do you think that there is this sidelining of the government? So I think this just has to do with the academic cycles that we see. So um, when Ostrom and Olson were writing, the assumption was that the state was this really big player who uh, who could influence things. And, and the conventional wisdom was that these large players like the state were the entities that would solve collective action problems. Um, and then because of that, people got really, really interested in the 80s in how people solve collective action problems without any kind of state intervention. And then we kind of just forgot about the state. <laughs> there, was, there, was a, there wasn't much of a point uh, where within these, these collective action theory discussions, the state then kind of like came back in in a big way. Um, the state's definitely in some things, like Ostrom discusses the state and local politics, especially in many of her books. But um, but the state doesn't become this big player again the way that uh, that it was kind of assumed to be, but not fully theorized as um, earlier on. Uh, and I also think that that in my work and and in the book, um, the role that the state is playing is particularly novel and interesting where there's it's not just like the state as this large monolith um, that can compel people to do things it's these people that work within the state who have these very specific incentives to get some kind of compliance out of these um 
out of informal workers and out of the informal sector in general, who are then coming up with all of the ins- these incentives to try to get people to to organize. And that relationship is not something, um, at least I haven't seen it in um, uh, in other literature in the collective action fields. I see. And yeah, and I think this focus on the state is particularly important. And I think it shines through the um, in the two cases that you've um, zeroed in, uh, zeroed on. So like you have Brazil, yeah, uh, Brazil and uh, Bolivia. And you do in the book, you have a very detailed explanation and justification for, for your case selection. But for the benefit of, of our listeners, can you just tell us a little bit more about first the choice to focus on Latin America and second, uh, these two countries that uh, you ended up um, selecting. So why, yeah, how did you come to that to that decision? Yeah, so it it goes less to a focus on Latin America and more a focus on on Bolivia specifically. So in the area of informal work and the informal sector, Bolivia is one of the places in the world with the highest levels of informality. So when we have different rankings of informality, either by size of GDP or how many people work informally, Bolivia is always at the top or number two or tied to the top. Um, and so Bolivia is a really interesting case to look at informal work and informal dynamics. And then more broadly, as a political scientist, there's lots of things that happen in Bolivia that either don't happen in other places or don't happen to the extent that they do in Bolivia. And so Bolivia always has lots of really, really interesting um, theoretical puzzles to look at from a political science theory standpoint. And so that's that's how I got into, into Bolivia was just seeing all these different things. And uh, whenever I'm in Bolivia, there's this constant... Um, there's this constant thing of like, why is that happening? Why is that happening? This goes against expectations. This goes against theory. Why are we seeing this? Why are we seeing that? Um, and so, so Bolivia is always supplying a lot of really interesting research questions. Um, Brazil then is, so, so Bolivia is like the extreme case where the dynamics are really clear. Uh, Gehring, C. Wright call this a pathway case where, where we see everything work in these really stark terms. And then Brazil is another pathway case, but basically Brazil's kind of the the average. Brazil's what usually happens. Um, and so levels of informality in Brazil are, um, are around the average for Latin America and around the average for the Global South too, where there's about 40% of people are working informally and 20 to 30% of GDP comes from informal work. So we see some similar dynamics, but they're not as they're not as darker or extreme as as we see in in Bolivia. Um, and political scientists will say, ah, but we should not be selecting on the dependent variable, and this is all selecting on the dependent variable. Right. There are several things in the book where, like, I select other cases within those countries um, on the independent variable. Uh, and then also for for just the initial case selection, the initial part of the project was very much theory development, totally fine to select on the dependent variable for theory development. And then you test with new external data, which I did through the, the quantitative work that looks at data from across Latin America um, and across the world, actually. So there there's plenty of, of things in the book uh, where I, I start from an independent variable standpoint or 
test um, parts of the theory on on new data. It's not just a dependent variable story. Okay, but even if it was, I think there's a lot of angsty grad students listening to you right now feeling really relieved. So I think this is great sort of see that analysis come to come to fruition. And it is, I really have to commend you that it is super uh, lucid. And I loved, uh, I loved how you justified the case election. Um, one thing that I was, now I want to move on a little bit beyond the, the national level, more like individual level. So one, one sentence in your concluding chapter, sorry if I'm like sort of speeding through it, but we'll come back to other parts later on. So one sentence in your concluding chapter that really stuck with me, and I think you already alluded to this, every hour spent organizing is an hour of lost income or rest. So can you walk us through the sort of cost-benefit analysis that goes into your average street vendor's head? when they're thinking about the possibility of organizing and how did this uh, differ, if at all, between the two cases that you've examined? Yeah, so in the book, I talk about how organizing needs to be worth the time of a street vendor or an informal worker. And street vendors are my cases of informal workers for the, for the qualitative portion of the book. And so, the decision to organize needs to give people benefits that outweigh what they would otherwise spend those those hours doing. And so the way that people looked at, and, and I demonstrate in the book with, with interviews and with participant observation, that the street vendors I was working with really did approach organizing in this cost-benefit way. They talked about the cost, they talked about the benefits, they were very clear that like, they were going to do this if it was worth it. And if it wasn't worth it, they weren't going to do it. They were going to do something else. And so there was a very big difference in the way that street vendors in Bolivia talked about it versus street vendors in Brazil. And there were also individual level differences. So organizing made sense for, for some people in Bolivia, but not everyone. Um, and people that it made sense for would talk about how they get benefits. And people that it didn't make sense for would talk about how they didn't get benefits. So they didn't do it. Um, whereas in Brazil, it made sense for or it gave benefits to very few people and very few people organized. So the and of course, this is like, I'm not sure uh, what the the average street vendor in the world would would think these um, these observations are pulled from the, the people that I talked to in La Paz and El Alto in Sao Paulo. But what participants told me was that they're working a lot. Like they're often working um, eight, 10, 12 hours a day to try to make money. A lot of people have kids at home. So they're also trying to take care of kids. They're trying to take care of other family members. They're trying to get enough money to pay their bills. They're cooking. They're Sometimes they're also like making the things that they're then selling. So like one of the people I worked with, it's been like four hours a day sewing clothes. And then she spends like, six hours a day selling those clothes. And then she also had like a disabled child that she was caring for. And so she was just working from like literally 4 a.m. until 10, 11, 12 p.m. every night. And so in that context where people are working a lot, they're only going to take on, you know, these extracurricular activities of organizing, uh, going to union meetings, approaching local government if 
if they're going to get a concrete benefit out of it in a, in a reasonable amount of time, right? Uh, and so in Bolivia, that's what people talked about, right? Like I need to get this cooperation or I need to have the cooperation of the local government. I need to get this particular document. I need to get this um, particular thing approved. And so I'm going to join this group. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to this meeting. I'm going to do this thing with this local bureaucrat. Whereas in Brazil, where bureaucrats refuse to meet with and work with street vendors, people will be like, it's like, it is futile for us to try to organize. Like, why would we spend our time doing that? The um, local government is never going to meet with us. And even if they meet with us, they're never going to actually give us any of these things that we're interested in, which is typically licenses, some kind of security assurances, uh, freedom from police harassment, anything that makes your business more stable and more profitable. And the street vendors in Brazil were like, yeah, that's never going to happen. So why would I waste my time going to these meetings? And so people had these these pretty stark cost-benefit analyses depending on their personal situations uh, and then also the local and national political context that they were in and what they could expect from the local government, particularly. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, and I think... Um... From your book, it's very clear that the way you've arrived at sort of like understanding how the more um, macro level works uh, or how it's it understood against the backdrop of the micro level is sort of triangulating a lot of different um, data and uh, analysis techniques. So could you just walk us through your absolutely fascinating um, just um, data collection plan? Because you've uh, leveraged a, a lot of them and... What I'm curious about specifically is how do they cohere with one another and what sort of purpose um, do they um, serve? I understand from the book that and it, re- it is pretty clean. Um, each specific data analysis is tailored to a particular point and is answering like a sub question. And at the end of the book, it's sort of like you get the full, the full picture um, and you understand how these different techniques like cohere with one another, but sort of try to explain it to us. Um, yeah, maybe also uh, the machine learning, which I tried to explain it to me as as if I'm a baby. <laughs> maybe, yeah, go ahead. Sorry about that. Okay, let me do data collection first, and yeah. then I'll do um, analysis second. So because I'm working with informal workers who I, I haven't defined informal worker up to this point either. So an informal worker is anyone who is working outside of state-sanctioned labor structure. So it's anyone who is... Um, not following local labor regulations, doesn't have the licenses or permits to legally do their job in the place that they're working, and or is not paying into taxes or Social Security or any other of these like state um, structures that that workers are supposed to participate in. So this designates a really heterogeneous group of workers around the world and across different sectors as as informal. Um, street vendors are one of the, there's a bunch of different like typically informal jobs. Street vendors are one of the canonically informal jobs where like you can have a formal street vendor, but they're pretty rare. Um, and uh, it, 
I have data on how different types of informal workers organize around the world. Street vendors are kind of right in the middle. So they're uh, like a, a canonical kind of average case to look at. And so because I'm working with people who are by definition outside of the state structures that collect data, <laughs> um, my, my approach to getting data for this project was more data is better and I'm going to take any possible data that I can get. Um, the other thing with working with informal workers and is that I'm working with people who are breaking all kinds of local and national laws on a regular basis. And so they may not also be super forthcoming with a strange foreign researcher about what they're doing and why they're doing it. Um, because they're doing things that aren't entirely legal. And so because of that, it started with the ethnography, because through ethnography, we can build relationships over time so that people who may not feel comfortable revealing what they're doing to a strange researcher, um, say in an interview the first time that they meet, may then reveal that information and feel more comfortable once you have a more trusting relationship um, and from a political science research perspective, ethnography can be really, really useful, particularly for things where people have an incentive to hide what they're doing, because you can pick, you can compare people's words and actions over time. And so you can see if those words and actions are consistent or if there is some slippage in, in what people are doing and saying. You can also figure out why there's slippage. Is that because they trust you more now or is it because they understand what they're doing as, as something different than than what they actually um, than what they're actually doing or what they actually tell you. So that ended up being really really useful for this project. The ethnographic data showed me um, pretty much everything. <laughs> the quantitative data like confirms what I what I see in the ethnographic data for uh, La Paz and Sao Paulo. But the the heart of the project is the ethnographic data, and the like innovative and novel part of the project comes from seeing officials and street vendors interact through the ethnographic stage. So I started with the ethnographic stage, and I spent um, uh, like twelve months collecting data ethnographically primarily in Bolivia with some um, with a couple of months in in Brazil and so what I did there was I I worked as the street vendor um, and then I went to lots and lots and lots of meetings with um, within the unions and associations of street vendors um, within the like larger federation meetings that brought the unions together within the individual union meetings and then also lots of meetings and negotiations between um, street vendors and bureaucrats um, at the at the city level. And then I also did a lot of ride-alongs with police um, so that I saw also how street vendors were interacting um, with the police. And um, to me, the really interesting thing about that that I, that I talk about a lot in the book is that uh, the police in Bolivia like defer to the street vendor organizations to enforce local laws. And so there's not, um, there's a very cooperative relationship between the local police and street vendors because the police will like notice things tell the street vendors to to enforce it the street vendors will then enforce things and then if they need like backup they'll call the police the, they'll call the it, it's, they're kind of police light 
Um, but there's this very like symbiotic relationship between them, which coming from the United States is, is quite a surprise. Um, and then this is also very different compared to, to Brazil, where there's a much more antagonistic relationship that's more similar to the United States um, between the military police who patrol markets in Sao Paulo and the, the street vendors. So I have a lot of ethnographic data from that stage. And then towards the end of that, I also did a lot of interviews with street vendors and um, bureaucrats, officials, police um, to to fill out some of that. Excuse me. Uh, and then once that was done, I collected data from the Latin American Public Opinion Project, um, from the Comparative Study of Elections Survey uh, to, to try to see if we see similar patterns in these large national data sets where, where we have a bunch of workers responding to, to a variety of things about what they do and how they interact with the government. And short story, they do. Um, and, uh, and then I also have some administrative data, which I started trying to get when I was doing the ethnographic field research, and it took me five years to get. So I ended up getting it on like a return research trip um, later, but I also have administrative data from the, the Bolivian city government. Uh, so all of this is to say I have lots of different sources of data in the book, and the principle that governs those sources is just trying to collect as much data as possible since I'm researching a data-scarce topic and population. Um, for any graduate students that listen to this and read the book where it, lo it looks neat. It looks like, oh, I have this hypothesis and so, like I have this data source and I have this. It looks like I planned everything. I absolutely did not. <laughs> That's the relief. That's the relief. There were so many things that went wrong. There were so many sources of data that I thought existed and then they didn't. Like, um, And so it was very much a just, I'm going to try to get as much data as I can um and then see what happens um you people should absolutely come up with with data collection plans um now that i'm further along in this i i have data collection plans that do go more smoothly than this particular project did so you should always start with a data collection plan but if you're in the field and it goes wrong because the data doesn't exist you can't get access to this particular person like keep collecting data rework the data collection plan um and then and it would, you'll get interesting things. And that, that's what happens uh, with this project. So the, the presentation of like, this answers this came after years of scrambling for all that data uh, and then eventually getting enough, not because it like neatly worked out the first time um, I tried it. <laughs> well, reading through the book, I would, yeah, it, it did, that did not go across at all. Um, but it's really good to sort of like go through the process with you um and all of and it really shines through like the the, the richness of the empirical data um, really comes across uh, and one thing that was pretty intriguing to me uh, specifically uh about your ethnography i have to say it caught me a little bit off guard but in a positive way is that and you said it you worked as an affordable street vendor for some time um i have to say i went into this book not expecting this at all and as somebody who does labor ethnography i was pleasantly surprised and really excited about this detail. Uh, and, and now I'm going to use this opportunity to ask a couple of maybe self-serving questions. So I'm, I'm curious why it was important for you to actually uh, work uh, informally. So I know in the book, you said something about 
there were a couple of instances where the interlocutors asked for something tangible in return uh, for them providing you access. But beyond that, how important was that um, experience? So it ended up being really key to the project and how I understood people's incentives and decisions. But it wasn't something that started in the initial research design or in the data collection plan. Um, I did not go into the field planning to work as a street vendor. Uh, I, uh, for several reasons, one being that I honestly just didn't think about it. Um, it was something that came up while I was in Bolivia. Um, and so I had a bunch of people approach me and like give me job offers. Um, and some of them were, some of them were people I was working closely with, but a lot of them were people I wasn't working all. I had multiple people who were like barely acquaintances who own stalls in a particular market in Bolivia be like, I need someone like you who speaks multiple languages. Like you're hanging around the markets all the time. Like, would you work for me? <laughs> and and I, I said no over and over again. And then I started thinking like, hey, it might actually be really useful to do this um, and like and see if I get different data and different information. And so one of the street vendors that I was working closely with was like, hey, it'd be really helpful for me if you could work my stall one day a week because she she worked her stall or she had her stall seven days a week. It was important to her to sell seven days a week. Saturdays are the busiest days in the market that she works in, but she was really religious and her church held Saturdays. So Saturdays was the one day that she didn't go to the market. So she was like, it'd be really helpful for me if you could sell for my stall on Saturdays. Um, and you know, maybe it'll help your study. And so I was like, okay, I'll I'll try that and see what happens. <laughs> And it ended up being really key because it helped me understand all of the very minute things that people have to think of and keep in their head and be aware of while they're selling and how all of those different considerations influence the decisions they're making about organizing and then also the things that they need and that are important to them and that they ask for. So I didn't understand how important space in the market was until I was working as a street vendor at the stall and like the woman next to me was fighting with me over like a tenth of a centimeter. Like it was like the position of the stall of like one stall leg on this one rock that was like the size of a dime. And I like off for the life of me see where the limit was because I was like it's on the rock. Like who cares where on the rock it is, the rock and the size of the dime. But it was really, really important exactly where the stall started and ended because there were these really big disagreements about exact stall dimensions because it, it shapes um, how much you can sell and how profitable your your stall is. And so I didn't understand that dynamic until I until I worked as a street vendor. And I also didn't understand like the really intense dynamics around space within the market and how intensely regulated that market is by street vendors and by those associations that people are like it these markets look really chaotic, right? You walk into this market, it looks like chaos, it looks like anarchy. It does not look like anybody is tightly regulating it. But in fact, Base is regulated down to a tenth of a centimeter to the point where it's difficult to see it with your naked eye. Uh, and I didn't understand that until I was um, I was working as a street vendor. Um, similarly, after that, and after I like started to learn a lot of things from from doing that in Bolivia, when I went back to Brazil, um, I took one of my um, one of the people that I've been working with in Brazil before had offered to 
show me how to be a street vendor in this market in Brazil. Um, and I said no initially. And then after I had that experience with Olivia, I was like, yes, I would absolutely love to see this. And so I worked with him um, for, for a much shorter period of time, uh, like once or twice a week for four weeks and, um, and, and saw what the incentives and decision-making processes were like for the street vendors in, in Brazil. And that also really helped because those street vendors were running from military police on a regular basis. And it was a much different experience to like sit on the side of the market and watch the military police come by versus like the intense adrenaline and fear and anxiety of watching the military police coming down the street and needing to like pack things up and like get out of there so that I didn't lose money and wares for my friends. Um, and so, so that really hit home, like what some of those dynamics were like and like how antagonistic that relationship was, especially compared to Bolivia. So I'm really glad I did that. And I also highly, highly recommend for, um, anybody doing ethnography that, um, um, I mean, of course it's very dependent on what you're doing, but I'm a, I'm a big believer of actually doing the activity that you are studying. I think it, it really helps you learn and embody and viscerally understand the dynamics that that you're looking at in a way that observation doesn't quite get you. I, I could not I could not agree more. Um, so thank you for that little promo for labor ethnography. I appreciate it. Now on the opposite spectrum of ethnography is machine learning. Um, so I was fascinated <laughs> by how you use machine learning to sort of estimate informality and as you defined it. So the idea is that you have this algorithm that uh, takes in individual and country level variables and predicts who works informally and who does not. But as you show in the book, the algorithm does not always get it right and can at times miscla misclassify people. So I wonder if you can walk us through how you went about locating and then rectifying these misclass misclassifications and your frustrations with, with machine learning around the process. <laughs> Yeah, so my approach to analyses was similar to my approach to data gathering, which is like let's try as much as as we can and see and see where it goes. So I, I mean, I sorry that sounds like less <laughs> rigorous than what I actually did. So um, I was I was trying to do analyses um, that would that would test different aspects of the theory, and so I started with the workhorse political science one. So there's a bunch of logits in there um, and other kind of standard statistical regressions on these large public opinion data sets. Um, but it's, there's lots of issues with the with the data. Um, there's lots of there's lots of gaps. There's lots of missing data, and so I was looking for a variety of other types of analyses that would try to triangulate these workhorse. Um, regression models and uh, and maybe account for some of the problems um, or, or just the shortcomings um, of the data. Again, going back to this, that I'm I'm working in an area of data scarcity, and so I don't have like the super high the super high quality high feature data that I would want doesn't exist, uh, and so so I'm trying to triangulate these different data sources and then using different analyses. Um, to to do that. And so I started doing the machine learning and I think like I had some friends who were in computer science and so they were like, try this. And I was like, okay. Um, and so, so, you know, yay for interdisciplinary friendships. Uh, and so I, I tried to, the machine learning in a bunch of different 
ways and some of them um, didn't make sense. But what I found the machine learning to be really good for was I had the survey data from um, other, from like large survey sources where I had these data sets that had a bunch of people who had answered questions around social security that I could use to identify them as informal workers. And then there were questions about like, um, have you unionized? Do you belong to an association? Do you protest? Have you contacted local officials? And so I could use those questions to identify who in the data set were informal workers and then what were they doing? How were they mobilizing at work? Who was mobilizing at work? Um, but those questions had only been asked in like one or two years. And so there's like people from 2006 and 2008 who had answered these questions that I could use to identify informal workers. And then tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who had answered all the other questions in later years, but not the social security question because it hadn't been answered. Um, so I used the machine learning algorithm and specifically what I used was a random forest algorithm to um, classify who was likely an informal worker in other survey waves. So using all the demographic information that we had to um, to say, okay, well, these are the people that answered the social security question. And then these are the people who are really, really similar and probably would have answered the social security question in the same way in 2010, 2012, 2014. Um, and, and it makes sense, right? Like, um, so for example, you know, uh, I'm going to make up a, a person, but this is like pretty close to one of the people that was in the data set. There's like a woman in Peru who is a domestic worker in 2006, and she does not make social security contributions, and um, she doesn't organize at work. And so, like, I know that that Peruvian woman in, in 2006 who works in domestic work is an informal domestic worker. Um, but then there's a Peruvian woman in 2012 who is a domestic worker in a different city. And I don't have the question of if she makes social security contributions or not. Um, and so what the algorithm does is it says like, okay, how, like, these are all of the people who, who um, were informal workers per the social security question in 2006. These are all the things that are associated with informal work. Um, how, like, do these people from 2012, then um, who looks like an informal worker and who doesn't? Uh, and so I can create this, this data set of likely informal workers. Um, as you mentioned, there are shortcomings of this. Uh, there's, I can see who in 2006, the algorithm correctly classifies as informal worker or not. Um, I cannot see in 2012 who's correctly classified as informal worker. So I know I have a data set of likely informal workers. I know what the error rate is on the algorithm, but I can't identify in that 2012 data set um, who is erroneously identified as an informal worker. Um, so there's definitely some error and um, uh, and there's some issues with, with using it, which is why I use it as like an interesting check on the logistic um, regressions and like to um, uh, to to be another layer of these analyses that I do, but you know, nothing um, entirely hangs on the uh, the error rate of the machine learning algorithm. I will stop there. Beyond Brazil and Bolivia, um, 
I'm wondering what lessons might we draw about informal workers and in other parts of, of the world? And uh, more generally, how is the book relevant for, for policymaking? So imagine you're talking to an eager and maybe sympathetic uh, bureaucrat. Uh, what kind of inferences would, would you hope they, they would make uh, having read your book? Absolutely. So the core argument is that we see informal workers organizing where local bureaucrats, politicians, um, and, and not just local, it can also be national too, uh, state officials intervene in their organizing decision by offering them some kind of incentive to organize that they want. In the case of street vendors, it's often licenses. And so we see this in lots of other informal markets, informal sectors, other countries outside of, of Bolivia and Brazil, where we have varying levels of organizations. And often if we have these really massive organizations like we see in Bolivia, where, you know, 75, 80, in some places, 90% of street vendors belong to these unions, it's typically because local officials are offering some kind of incentive. So one of my favorite examples is India. Um, there's a lot of different informal worker organizations in India, and one of the incentives that officials offer are these like health debit cards. So if you're part of a registered informal worker organization in India, you can get these debit cards that you can use for all different kinds of healthcare expenses. So this is money towards something that people really need, people really want, um, that they get if they join these organizations. So we absolutely see this happening in other places. The example in India is just one. There's lots of examples from um, uh, from Nigeria, from Uganda, from um, all over Latin America. Um, and, uh, and as far as policy recommendations go, what I would say is that... Um, Local and national officials should be working with informal workers, and they should specifically be working with informal workers organizations, with leaders, with activists, um, for a variety of reasons. One, there's lots of different programs that policymakers in different places have told me that they want informal workers to participate in. If you want informal workers to participate in these programs, you need to be talking to them, you need to be giving them things that they want, and you need to be talking to their organizations and encouraging those organizations. Um, so for example, if you want informal workers to participate in a tax program, then that tax program needs to offer benefits that informal workers want. Um, and I, I've seen this in, in Bolivia, I've seen this in Brazil, um, when, when officials work with informal workers and offer them things that they actually want, informal workers flock to those officials, flock to those programs, they will do a lot of the things that you ask them to do. Um, but if you offer them things that they don't want, or if you just kind of set up this program and wait for them to, to show up, it doesn't happen. Uh, and so... Talk to informal workers, talk to informal worker organizations when you are designing and setting up programs and set them up with um, what people want and what people can and cannot do in mind uh, and not just expect them to, to come to you later. So there's a bunch of programs that have been set up by different governments for informal workers that have really low enrollment and a lot of the thing the, a lot of the commonalities in those are that they require informal workers to come with lots of documentation 
informal workers are going to come with lots of documentation. They're informal. That's like one of uh, it's like one of the hallmarks of the um, of the thing. So if, for example, you're trying to get informal workers into a simplified tax regime to just get people paying some level of tax, and you want to distinguish between um, actual informal workers and uh, say like medium-sized business owners that are just trying to get the the simplified tax rate. Um, then don't require all that paperwork from the informal workers. Like, make it your job as the state to to do that to figure out who's a legitimate participant in that program. If you require informal workers to come with all of this paperwork, then you're not going to get informal workers. You're just going to get the like better resourced, better documented, medium sized businesses that are still trying to like kind of cheat the system. And um, Similarly, I, I've seen all different kinds of programs that offer uh, a lot of things like, say, a simplified tax rate that informal workers don't particularly want or care about, um, but don't offer things that informal workers do want or care about. So um, if you are a policymaker who's designing a program, you should be piloting it with informal workers that you're targeting. But some of the common things that, that people want um, are uh, licenses. Um, or some other kind of like state protection um, uh, money. If you can give people money, they're, they're pretty interested in that. Um, and then often some kind of like healthcare access, money for healthcare, um, things related to healthcare, because getting adequate healthcare access is a big struggle for lots of, of informal workers. And then finally, I, I don't, and I don't know how far this applies outside of Bolivia, but one of the interesting things in Bolivia is that there's lots of different like national ministries that would set up programs for informal workers, and they would have some kind of incentive that they thought informal workers would want um, that the informal workers that I talked to that were part of that program didn't particularly want. What informal workers wanted from that program, and the reason why they signed up was that they wanted documentation. They wanted documents that would link them to the state to be like, look, see, I'm participating in this, like my, uh, you know, my small business is legitimated by the state in this way. And then they would use those documents for other things, but they weren't actually participating to get whatever um, incentive the, the state was offering. So again, please work with informal workers. Please talk to informal workers. Please pilot things with informal workers. Please work with informal workers organizations and be sure to design incentives for programs around what people actually want and what also they're able to do. Whilst also remembering that informal workers are not a monolithic voting group, right? Because that's something that, yeah. So reflect on that a little bit. <laughs> um, so yeah, so, uh, so informal workers are not monolithic in, in lots of ways, uh, which my language probably hasn't reflected um, very clearly. But uh, there's lots of different types of informal work, and there's also lots of different kinds of people who are doing informal work. So um, you can have informal work in literally every sector and every job, uh, and, and we see that, right? Like we see people working informally in like white collar professional services um, by not paying taxes, not paying to social security, not following the laws. Um, and then we see people uh, working, you know, um, so like agriculture, domestic work, uh, street vendors, trash collection, transportation are kind of the like canonical informal jobs, but we have lots and lots and lots of other types as well. Um, and then the people who work 
informally are also very much not a monolith. Um, in many countries around the world, most people are going to work informally at some point in their life, right? Like, I'm a professor from the United States, which is like one of the least informal um, economies in the world. And like, I've worked informally doing like landscaping and babysitting and like food service under the table. So like I've worked informally in my career, um, even in this pretty formal context. Uh, and that's pretty common, right? Uh, most people in Bolivia, Brazil, but also Peru, India, Nigeria, Mexico, um, Indonesia are going to work informally at some point in their career and we typically see that happening when um when people are like very early in uh workers so people tend to people who are working as teenagers in their early 20s um and people who are are older so after you've retired from another career if you're trying to bring in side money um people will be more likely to work informally. Women are more likely to work informally. Gender and sexual minorities are more likely to work informally. Um, racial and ethnic minorities are more likely to work informally. So um, anyone who's also more likely to face discrimination in the formal labor market, more likely to work informally. So we have a really heterogeneous group of people. Um, and then, yeah, they don't have uniform political preferences at all. Um, like some of the people I worked with were like, admitted Marxists and some of the people I worked with were like super religious conservative and this isn't the same place like, like this is in La Paz uh, and like um, some of the people I worked with voted for the Green Party <laughs> so there's just there's very very different political preferences across this kind of work as well. Um, now that you've yeah you've said that I am wondering about your your interlocutors specifically those that you worked with and uh, whether you were able to share with them your conclusions and and your book and how do they make sense of all of this and is this convincing to them the theories that you put forward? Yeah, so I talked with my I talked with people who participated in my study throughout the process, uh, and so this is no surprise to them. Like essentially, I am describing what already happens for them and they're telling me what already happens and so the the novelty of this project is to political science that doesn't expect um officials to be encouraging people who are breaking lots of, of laws to organize and using state resources to to organize these unions and associations and encourage these unions and associations this is not new <laughs> to the to the street vendors that i'm working with um, and so, so yes, they, they were, they were part of this process and I presented the project at a couple different stages to the street vendor organizations that I was working with, um, in, in Bolivia specifically. Um, and so they saw this at different stages. I like, I, I did some surveys with them too. And so I like wrote reports on the surveys and gave them to the, um, to the street vendor federation um and then i also like took my book back and like gave people copies of the book um i've translated the book and hopefully it will come out in spanish at some point but like i have the like spanish pdf of it um so i've been distributing that as well uh and so so yeah people people are aware of this um and uh, as time has as has gone on, like I basically stayed in touch with the people I like. <laughs> so the people I I like get along with are the ones that I you know see every time I I go back to Bolivia and keep talking with um, about the book project, uh, and the the personalities um, 
there were there were some older men in the organizations that I worked with that I really didn't get along with. And so like I I stopped contacting them uh as tables got on. But um the the people I continue to to have relationships with and be in touch with, like, you know, yeah, um they're this reflects what what they've experienced and and that's what they tell me. Thank you so, so much for speaking with me about your book, Why Informal Workers Organize Contentious Politics, Enforcements and the State. I really enjoyed this conversation. I enjoyed reading the book even more. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Would you like to add anything before we get off the air? Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about my work with with you and also uh, with the audience. So um, I hope y'all read the book. I hope you like it. Feel free to get in touch. Um, I'm very easily Googleable, Googleable uh, and all of my contact professional contact information is on the internet if you ever want to send me an email um, with questions. Fantastic. Thanks again. Bye-bye.